Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.
Oh, hi. Hello there. Welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. You know the one. 2023 is a big year for mythological retellings. And while I can't have every author of them on my show, because there are so many, it's so great. I am especially thrilled to have spoken with today's conversation guest. Rani Selvaraja has not only written a retelling of our beloved and magnificent girl, Medea, but one that is entirely different from the traditional retellings that we've all been enjoying lately. This is Medea, but in colonial India. Yeah. Savage Beasts is a new novel that tells the story of Medea through characters living through the height of the East India Trading Company in India. It's the 18th century, Jason is a fucking colonizer named James, and Mina is a badass woman from Calcutta. So needless to say, today's episode is not only a conversation about the novel generally, but one about the story of Medea as a foreigner, so specifically as a barbarian, and how that is used in this new and so very different retelling of her story. We talked about Medea and her sourcing, we talked about the lives of migrant women both now and then, we talk about colonialism (laughs) a lot, and writing a novel about the height of it. We worked to talk about all of these like deeply heavy things while also making it lighthearted, and I think we succeeded. You know, it's Medea. (laughs) It was so fucking fun to talk to Rani about her new novel and all of these other seriously important topics. This is definitely one of the more powerful and timely conversation episodes that I've had in a while. Obviously, I, I truly just cannot wait for you all to hear it. It's so good. So let's get right into it. Conversations, Jason as Colonizer, rewriting Medea with Savage Beasts author Rani Salvaraja. I'm so excited to talk to you today because your book is so different from what I usually do when I'm talking to authors, which is like those sort of straight retellings that are super popular right now. And those are wonderful Mm -hmm. and great. But I was so excited that there is a, you know, a quote unquote retelling of Medea that is not a straight retelling that is not set in ancient Greece. And I just think that is so damn interesting, um, which is (laughs) sort of my like talk around way of saying, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of we'll keep it spoiler free and just talk Medea, but also everything about your book that you want to say. Um, but like, okay, before I just keep rambling, because I do that, why don't you tell me like where your book is set? What time period? Because that's, what's so interesting. Just tell me literally everything you want to up front, And then we will go into whatever else from there. <laughs> sure. Um, and yeah, th- thanks for having me on. Uh, this is really exciting for me. Oh, um, I- yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> Um, so yeah, my my book, my debut novel is called Savage Beast, and it's a retelling of Medea, but uh, set during the 18th century, during the rise of the East India Company uh, in India. And for anyone who doesn't know, the East India Company was um, at one point the largest corporation in the world, um, a sort of private trading company that effectively ruled most of India for about 100 years before the actual sort of 
British country um, ruled India for about 200. So it was sort of paved the way for colonialization of India. And so it's the book tells the story of Medea, but also tells the story of colonization and explores themes of what it's like to be a foreign othered woman and the injustices they experience that I think are really uh, relevant and present in Medea's story, particularly as told by Euripides. Hell yeah. <laughs> Euripides is the best one, obviously. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, that's what's so interesting to me. Like, I, I mean, I think Medea is so ripe for exactly this because of what you're saying with like, she is this foreigner. She's the, you know, quote unquote barbarian. I talk about that word mm. all the damn time. Mm. So I won't try to remind the listeners now, but like, it's, yeah, she's so interesting in that. And as soon as I saw that your book was going to exist, which I feel like I heard about it like a year ago now and was like, holy shit, mm. that sounds amazing because yeah, I think it might have been a year about now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, I've been looking forward to it um, all that time <laughs> because what made you want to tell the story that way mm -hmm. you know like yeah what kind of spurred you to to not only retell Medea but to do it in mm -hmm. this like really unique and I and like impactful way so I guess I don't know taking um each part of your question I guess what's by <laughs> me to tell Medea's story is that first of all she's great like I love her. I think it's impossible to, uh, yeah, to sort of read her story, uh, discover it, and not be just totally captivated by her. I I had privilege of learning ancient Greek at school and studying uh, Euripides' play at A level, so I would have been about seventeen at the time, and just straight off the bat was totally captivated by her, like the strength of her character, how uh, complex she was, and so I just really wanted to you know I feel like there should be tons of retellings of her to be honest um and so it's but I think for me I and you know potentially as a South Asian woman I um what captivated me was not only that you know she's any woman sort of fighting against these patriarchal forces so she absolutely is it's her specific position as a foreign woman and yeah kind of how that then relates and impacts um how like her specific situation and the treatment of her by other characters um so I wanted to uh explore that I guess and and I think it's something that often is kind of de-emphasized when we uh talk about Medea like I think the cultural like collective consciousness around Medea is that she's this woman scorned he's just angry that her husband left her uh, for like a younger woman when like I think the story is so uh, so much bigger and uh, more complex than that so I and I think the yeah, so I just feel like a retelling allows us to center that sort of aspect of that, of her identity and look at those kind of intersecting um, oppressions that she experiences relating to her gender, ethnicity and nationality. And, uh, and you know, also thinking about that, we, you know, people never write like without a context as, and the context I think specifically in the UK and around the world in many, uh, many respects is that migrant women, migrant people are regularly demonized and denigrated and harmed by state violence and sort of harmful legislative laws. I, at the time when I was uh, drafting back, uh, I was locked down and I was working for an organization in the UK that, um, campaigns uh, for the end of violence against women and we were specifically uh, campaigning on the domestic abuse bill that was going through parliament at the time prior to ensure that uh, migrant women had uh, equal protection um, and support because 
uh, currently they don't. They um, run the risk of potentially being uh, deported or detained if they go to the police um, to report abuse. Um, they don't have access to mainstream refuge or women's shelters. So kind of that was very much top of my mind when I was uh, writing the book and wanted to kind of explore that. And I, so I guess that's kind of why I wanted to tell Medea's story. And then thinking about setting, I guess taking then Jason's role in it. I just, I know, I guess, I think I've been, yeah, I studied, first studied the, the play at school and it's been sort of on my mind for, you know, decades now, I guess. And, um, and just, you know, if you think, think about the myth, it's the story of this guy, he's from the West, who kind of sells, in, you know, seeking adventure and fortune that will kind of enhance his status back home. He, uh, but, um, you know, comes upon this foreign to try, yeah, try and take this kind of treasure, this uh, stone, um, this foreign gold. He uh, does that with, um, you know, not really through his actions most of the time. A lot of it's sort <laughs> of the labour and, you know, the ingenuity of someone else. Um, the, Jason is you know, so ridiculous. Honestly, he does mean, nothing for himself ever. We, we can get into Jason. <laughs> hey, I like. I'm definitely with you that Theseus is the worst. I think it's hard good, to, good. you know, you. hard to argue, you know, the otherwise. But J- Jason feels like my personal enemy. Like, it's <laughs> so much. But yeah, he's this guy who, um, who, yeah, kind of off the back of other people's labors, you know, able to profit, and then you know, he proceeds to treat her appallingly and disregard her whenever, it, you know, when it's expedient. And that felt like the story of colonization and particularly kind of Britain's relationship with its formerly colonized people. Like in the UK, there was, um, you know, a couple of years ago, a huge scandal where um, sort of generation of people who came here sort of post-war uh, from the Caribbean, known as the Windrush generation, um, named after a ship that a lot of um, um, the ships that came in and support them here kind of and they, that was a generation that effectively built you know so, you know our public services worked in the NHS National Health Service and that was I think um, and they sort of came here sort of they were told that they would be welcomed and they were needed and they you know they were our uh, British citizens and then that was that status was then yanked from them later in life and they were deported and so that just if, I know the only way I can describe is that just retelling Medea's story in this way during the rise of colonialism just made sense to me. Like it just, just made it just felt like so perfect. And I guess particularly, but yeah, you know, my heritage is um, South Indian, Sri Lankan, and I was interested in exploring colonialism in that region. And reading about it, you can yeah really start to trace the beginnings of that in 1757. So uh, when they the East India Company took um, effectively rule over Bengal so it felt like you know fitting start for the story so that it could be kind of set against that historical backdrop but then potentially also emblematic of colonization itself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah um, oh my god there's so many um, interesting things to take out of all of that I mean one yeah Jason is uh, ridiculous just to start it off light but also it's so interesting because like I, I've thought about the story of Medea in so many different ways and like for so long and, like, I mean truly one, she's one of the characters like for all the reasons that you set up front like that's she's absolutely fascinating and I think that there's like just an endless amount that you can kind of 
think about her character and all the different sources and all these different like versions and everything. There's just so much. But one thing that I've never, like I've always seen Jason and the Argonauts as like, you know, traveling to this foreign land and, and like, ultimately I kind of see Medea as, I mean, I don't want to say taken because like, obviously she does go of her own free will, but like, it mm. is the gods that cause that mm. ultimately, you know, especially in Apollonia. It's very murky in terms of like consent and, you know, kind of how much agency she had in that because of, yeah, the divine intervention kind of causing her love, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And especially in Apollonius, like it's so obvious mm. that she's just like, you know, mm. like they, they cause her to love Jason in that way. But and I'm sure that it's the, you know, colonizer in me because I am like deeply white and in Canada and generationally white Canadian. So like just full blown colonizer, like that I've never seen it as colonialism explicitly, but like just the way you describe it, like, it you know, it it's so much is like, obviously, they're not trying to like, you know, conquer a land or anything, mm. but they are going to a place their intention is to take a thing like they're going for the mm. golden fleece. They're going to like take a thing from this Eastern land and ultimately like take the princess back with them as well. And yeah, there's just, there's kind of so much there. And I mean, just generally like her story is fascinating because you get this foreigner aspect and what you were saying at the beginning too, like I agree, it's, it's something that's not focused on enough. And I think it is being focused on more and more now mm. because of the people that are getting voices in this field. But yeah, like that is the thing that makes her. She is she is a foreigner and that is what makes her fate, particularly in Euripides, like so hard for her to manage. Like if if she wasn't a foreigner, you know, objectively I think we can say that like she wouldn't have felt like she had to kill her children in Euripides because mm. the whole point is that like she has nothing when Jason leaves her because not only is she a woman but she's a foreign woman like she just literally has nothing and if he is leaving the kids with her like they have nothing and that to me that's always why she felt like she had to like sure maybe not the right decision Medea like you know it happens but like it, it it seems to me that that's what it is. And, and you're right that it's so often described more as like this wronged woman, this like spurned woman. She's so mad because he found like a younger, prettier wife. And it's like, that's mm. so not what is happening. And it's such like this, this like male, like uh, just patriarchal misogynist reading that has been just mm. sort of like fed down our throats for so long. This idea that like, Medea is just a crazy woman who killed her kids. Like that is such a common notion of her. And it's just like, and it's so like, it's so the opposite of what Euripides is trying to, yeah. to say in, in the play. Like there's not even, like there isn't even that much language like focusing on kind of like sexual jealousy. Like that's what Jason kind of accuses her of. There's not like, you know, lots of like language kind of comparing her to, to Glauke or Kosa, however kind of she's called um, in terms of like, oh, one's like younger and one's and like hot and one's like, you know, like she's over the hill or whatever. Like it's like, it's very much, about it's very much described about you know her being kind of non-greek and you know being this barbarian woman and you know she's a threat because of this and she's sort of described in this bestial language of being like you know that's dehumanizing sort of a lion a bull all that sort of stuff so it's you know very much othered in that way and like it's and also on the crazy point like it's like you know i think one of the defining features of her and is that she's very much of sound mind when she kind of makes that decision yeah. <laughs> she is very methodical and logical and she knows exactly how like the horrors of what she's doing in the play but she knows in her like 
to her mind that she has to do it. So, yeah, it's definitely one of those examples. And I think it's uh, something that a lot of um, sort of books that are doing kind of um, feminist retellings do uh, look at, which is basically sort of the the way that the, you know, the myths and stories have kind of come down to us over the centuries have actually kind of reinforced and added kind of extra patriarchal layers that actually aren't there in the original sources. Um, and it's, yeah, just kind of actually about stripping that back and kind of looking at, okay, what is actually there? What is kind of what I was trying to say? And yeah, I think Euphilis has like so much empathy and so and like real kind of understands the um the vulnerability of her position and how it's related to her status um as a foreign woman rather than just being someone yeah who's jealous and scorned yeah no that's exactly right like yeah I mean everything I think that or you know just like so many ways that people have been seeing these things for the past like say 400 years mm-hmm. are are so emphasized in in how like the the characters are seen today but yeah like that doesn't exist in Euripides like Euripides has empathy for her she is not the villain there are still people Mm -hmm. definitely who who would say that she is but I really Mm -hmm. like I don't read the Euripides and see her as a villain at all like she does bad things but no and, and and you're right like she is of sound mind completely like Euripides knows how to write madness he knows how to write somebody who is not there. Like I just covered Orestes and it's like, that's an entire play about a man who is like fighting with things in his head. Like he is, he's just literally like everything is kind of just unknown and everything's just going on in his head at all times. And we don't even know what he's thinking. Like Euripides knows how to show us somebody who is not, you know, in their right mind. And Medea is not it. She is methodical. Like you said, she is like so aware of what she's doing. It's simply that she, she feels that that is her only option in order to like essentially save her children from like a much more horrific fate. If Mm. they're, if Jason is allowed to do what he's going to do and like, Mm. yeah, I mean, I just, she's so damn fascinating and I just absolutely love her in every way. But like, so I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of, of writing her in this way. Like I definitely want to talk more about the colonial context too, because Mm. I think that's so important, but when it comes to like your character, like you're taking this story of Medea, you're putting it in this totally different setting. Like how did you want to go about writing your character and, and like just her as a person? Yeah. So I guess it's, it's interesting. I think kind of the further, you know, kind of further I got into the writing and editing process, I think, the more I was able to create kind of my characters of Mina, who is my um, sort of stand in for, for Medea kind of and make her kind of her own creation. I think definitely um, early drafts. I mean, the, the first time, yeah, first draft of the, you know, had no, had no expectation of it being published. It was just, honestly, it was just something um, I did to, just try, you know, see if I could write, write a book. <laughs> just kind of like, um, I was uh, slightly inspired by my partner. He had um, sort of grand plans of running a marathon before he turned 30 and then sort of lockdown happened. But I was just like, well, I'm never going to do anything that active and healthy. Um, but <laughs> I'm I'll, with I'll, I'll Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, but what can I do? I, I'll write a book. I've always, um, you know, said I like writing. And so, yeah, it was so at the start, it was very much just for me. And I think at the beginning, it, um, yeah, there was definitely a lot of sort of influence of, um, of Medea. Um, but then kind of taking her sort of 
creating her as her um as you know a character in her own right I was able to then sort of think about the specific context and um also take story kind of like tell Medea's story kind of um as a like almost um from end to end I guess in terms of mm. you know obviously the play at um you know just sort of one day in her life and it's sort of um yeah kind of when they're in Corinth so I was able to take it all the way back when kind of she's she's a young woman you know uh she's not married she's much younger a lot more naive and so and you know kind of try to then show that um I guess that kind of initial um, innocence and then how that's kind of um, how that's sort of stripped away through kind of everything that she experiences along the way with um, with James who is my sort of stand in for for Jason and and yeah kind of um, examine sort of what what that actually kind of looks like that process uh, how she becomes the you know, incredibly fearsome, sort of determined woman at the end. And that was actually quite um, quite fun to discover. And obviously, um, yeah, well, not necessarily obviously, but my book, there isn't any divine intervention. There aren't, um, you know, three gods in that way. And mm-hmm. so trying to sort of come up with uh, reasons for, you know, how she would come, you know, come to fall in love with him, and you know, after so, so soon and everything like that, it then requires, um, yeah, sort of, thought about okay what's the context in terms of her like what's her her family life like in terms of you know maybe she's sort of lonely and you know emotionally bereft of love and that kind of even if you know particularly if you're familiar with myth you might you know see see James and be like oh no red flag um (laughs) that's you know maybe like her she's actually drawn to him for for lots of different reasons and then sort of yeah see how that develops um but yeah no it was really interesting kind of trying to come up with yeah sort of and be inspired by mythical counter um counterparts of of the figures in my uh in my book but then also try and see how it could be influenced by the historical figures as well so for example there's a figure who comes to be um play a similar role to crayon and he's um, heavily inspired by um, a figure from history called Robert Clive, who uh, sometimes known as Clive of India. And he was um, like the first British governor of Bengal. And um, yeah, just even in his own time was known to be just hideously uh, greedy and vile and, you know, judged in terms of um, his uh, his actions in uh, in India, sort of contemporary satire, called him Lord Vulture for um, yeah. everything that he sort of the huge amount of um, yeah sort of wealth that he stole uh, from India, and then in addition to that, kind of beyond the scope of the the book in terms of the time frame, uh, Robert Clive's sort of uh, policies in terms of taxation or cultural reforms in the state. Uh, resulted in a famine in 1770 where millions of Athenians died so it kind of was um yeah in his own time reviled for everything they did and it's only kind of much later on in sort of 1900s when uh sort of start to get a slightly revisionist um view of him and uh sort of statues erected in his honor as you know one of the founders of the, the glorious empire <laughs> uh, so uh so yeah kind of it was it was quite interesting kind of weaving in um 
aspects of real life historical figures and sort of trying to meld them with their um, cool inspirations as well. Yeah. Well, what a great way to weave in more talk about the colonialism aspect because it, that part is so interesting and like, oh my God, just hearing about characters like that. Like, I mean, it, it, it shouldn't be surprising and like ultimately it isn't, but you know, you still are just mm. like, God, like it's not, just how was it taught about it, isn't it? Because no, exactly. Deliberately not deliberately not taught about it. You know, in in India, they're taught about it, obviously. <laughs> so yeah. they, you know, know the colonial history very well. But you know, it's very as much a part of British history as it is Indian history. And yet, I you know never been taught any of this stuff. Certainly not in any great depth. Um, and and in the back of my book, if anyone's interested, I do have a little author note about kind of that goes into some, into some of the history and recommends um, mm. a little reading list if anyone's interested. Because because yeah, it's history that we're not taught um, anywhere near enough, and and we should be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just makes me think of all the Canadian colonial history, right? Like, I mean, mm. we're talked to, we're taught about residential schools, and I think I think that it's getting better now. But like, mm. it makes me wonder if if the UK is taught about that at all like the the things they did in Canada to the indigenous yeah. people and yeah no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I would imagine not because it's yeah. like I mean it's horrific and and even like I you know I've graduated high school like too many years ago now um but like I don't I barely think we learned anything like I know my mom always mm. made a point of teaching it to us but like the last one in Canada closed in 1990 like mm. we were so recently horrific um and mm. so yeah that i mean just a, as a as a white canadian just makes me think of of all of that and and everything yeah. it took 11 years to get to the sale the nyx anniversary sale is on now at KNIX.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today 
at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. And actually, it's um, something you mentioned, so Canada, just um, as a, you know, throughout the book, because I'm a massive myth nerd, uh, you know, try to sprinkle <laughs> kind of Easter eggs and all sort of references to plays, oh, yeah. why the myth, and um, and yeah, kind of his, uh, James's ship is called the Argo, uh, because a lot of the ships uh, that were kind of run by the Eastern Newcomer were kind of named after classical figures and classical references because you know obviously they saw themselves as being you know kind of the inheritors of the legacy of the Romans and the Greeks they saw themselves as this was the new great empire so you know mm-hmm. it very much was you know influencing their thinking and there was a ship called the Argo that used to go between Liverpool and New Brunswick in um in Canada actually oh wow yeah yeah well that it's interesting that you say that so like I recently learned but I realized I didn't look into the history of this ship, but I recently learned that there was a ship um, and I am now imagining that it uh, probably was part. Cause I know also that um, East India company, uh, I believe they were the first ones who came over to like, cause I live on Vancouver Island mm. and, and there was like one of the earlier trading ports was in this area called the Nutka sound, which is like on our West end of the Island and mm. our West side of the Island. And and I feel it must, I'm pretty sure it was them who came in and like were some of the, um, you know, the first colonizers on this side of the country, because obviously mm. the Eastern part of our country was colonized first. But um, that's all to say, like there, there, we have this lake in town. I've talked about it on the podcast a few times, but we have this lake that's like sort of one of our biggest like swimming lakes. I feel like it isn't anymore because it's nasty now, but like it was, um, and it's called Thetis. And mm. I had always wondered whether there was a connection but like because most of our stuff out here is named for indigenous words and i was Mm. like maybe it's just like a coincidence but no it was named for a ship that came over Mm. and now i'm like oh i wonder if that ship and i know the ship was intentionally named for the nereid for thetis um and so now yeah it makes me think like probably the Mm. ship was from that time um and was part of what you're saying which like is so right about the you know the British empire of like this idea of inheriting quote unquote Western civilization. Right. Like it's just, ah, there's just so much, mm-hmm. but this isn't about uh, Canada or North America or, <laughs> but I am fascinated by the history part. So like it's hearing your influence for, for your sort of Creon stand in is, is so interesting, but like, obviously you're going to also put in a ton of other actual historical stuff because you are working in this lens of colonialism so like how much did you how much did you kind of invent like how much did you really want to emphasize like the the true colonial aspects I imagine a lot because that's what makes it so horrible but also like is so influential on your book and just like yeah I mean 
I'm just fa- fascinated by by how you kind of worked in all of that sort of colonialism generally. Mm. Yeah, so I guess, you know, whenever you're writing historical fiction, there's always kind of, yeah, that kind of decision of how much you sort of actually talk about, you know, the history and kind of incorporate that, but then, you know, how much is the fiction and, you know, how how much do you sort of give yourself license to, to do that? And I guess kind mm-hmm. of fundamentally um, it is obviously a fictional novel and it's, um, you know, inspired by a myth. So kind of the, I guess, core storyline of it it does reflect, um, you know, the myth of Medea. And so kind of those elements are fictionalized. But I I would say kind of like the overall kind of backdrop and kind of the impacts of colonialism that's sort of mentioned in there, they're very much um, influenced, uh, you know, they're very much inspired by um, actual fact in terms of the, uh, like, for example, uh, I picked the date uh, where it begins of 1757 because it's kind of uh, this date of this battle called Battle of Plassey, which is kind of marked the beginning of um, East India Company rule in Bengal. And kind of the background to that without kind of um, just a lot of the things uh, sort of, yeah, background around that whole thing is um, not so is not just about kind of military battle, but there's, you know, elements of like conspiracy and intrigue and that sort of without going to into spoilers, there's um an element of that, I would say, in the book. So not kind of, you know, exactly what happened, but kind of definitely nods towards that. Um, a lot of the impacts in terms of you know, characters talk about, you know, what they would do, uh, the East India Company in terms of destroying industry, kind of uh, you know, hurting, um, like, for example, like balloon makers and, uh, involved in the um, sort of textile uh, industry that was uh, really uh, rampant and vibrant in Bengal, kind of all that happened, sort of talked about, yeah, sort of taxation and um, the agricultural reforms, the um, ecological damage that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's very much true. And also, um, because the book kind of like um, Medea and Jason, kind of the characters travel around, so it doesn't just stay in India, it goes sort of elsewhere, and um, including uh, the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, mm. uh, which was um, at the time known as the Tavern of the Seas. It was kind of where uh, sailors would kind of stop off and uh, resupply and like food and everything, and like so it was this massive kind of hub and um, there also explored uh, the realities of enslaved people as well and just kind of diversity there and you know by the Dutch East India Company which was also known as the VOC I can't remember the Dutch of it I don't speak Dutch so but yeah so we just called it VOC (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah so kind of it uh the realities of that uh yeah but their kind of actions in South Africa and kind of across um, South Asia as well. Um, those are kind of all, um, yeah, kind of, I guess, kind of, yeah, built, uh, sort of bedded in reality, but then kind of what in individual characters uh, do is, of course, fiction and kind of inspired by the myth. And then, yeah, mm. kind of in, in the back of the book, try to sort of talk a little bit about kind of the realities of it in, in North's notes. And then if people are uh, interested and sort of learn more, you know, to learn more and kind of delve into the history a bit more than they can do. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, I mean, this is fascinating on so many counts. Like, for one, I think it's so cool and interesting that, that 
that there is this myth that is sort of so perfect. I mean, in so many ways, because Medea is amazing, but also like that, that it was so kind of ripe for you to, to be able to explore, you know, not only the issues of colonialism in, in, you know, like, and specifically like the East India company, but also then be able to utilize the Argo of it all, the, the like actual journey and just explore this like different part of the world and then be able to, to touch upon so many other historical aspects and, and still weave in the myth so perfectly. Like it just seems, it seems like so kind of perfect for that kind of story because you get this, this ability to be like, well, they're going to sail off. So I can kind of, you know, examine all the, the other things that were happening at the time and, and sort of like utilize those parts in the story to, to, to talk about like other, other things, you know, and then, and then to be able to put it at the end and have, you know, further reading and stuff is so great. Like, I just think generally that it, it's, it's like, it's like more than about time to have Greek myths and, and put into like non-Western contexts because mm-hmm. they do get used in this Western lens so often, like, you know, even just the, the example you were saying about, you know, naming ships and stuff like, and, and then the British feeling like they were the inheritors of it. Like that, that has turned, that has made Greek myths and, and, and like ancient Greece generally into this, like oftentimes dog whistle for, mm-hmm. for white supremacy and like Western supremacy generally. And so it's so great to be able to have a, you know, this kind of retelling that, sort of like literally turns that on its head like you know it's like you couldn't possibly go further in the opposite direction um Mm. and that's just cool (laughs) so i'm glad it exists thanks Thanks, Um, yeah uh, yeah, no absolutely there's um well i guess first of all just in terms of yeah kind of how it's been used to sort of bolster kind of this myth of yeah kind of white supremacy and kind of uh you know western imperialism that's definitely um that's definitely true and i think definitely kind of you can start to see the beginnings of of that kind of during the time that i'm writing which is also i guess was another um wasn't kind of what the story was about but i think definitely was a bit of an influence in terms of the setting as well thinking about mm. you know particularly in the uk uh, you do see this rise in you know interest in classicism in you know the architecture you know, in the uh, like dress styles, even just kind of the rise of archaeology and like and how often a lot of um, a lot of the wealth that was uh, used, you know, can generated through colonialism was then used to kind of perpetuate that. So, like for example, in um, in Scotland, where um, I think they definitely sort of disproportionately. Um, yeah, disproportionately represented in some sort of plantation owners back then. There might have been a quarter of plantations in the Caribbean. Yeah, owned by Scottish um, owners, but the, mm. a lot of that wealth kind of went to sort of um, generate sort of Scotland and sort of which was seen as like a new Athens in terms, you know, and it's very much linked to this Enlightenment period as well, which again sort of they saw themselves as the inheritors of of like you know Greek philosophers and you know kind of the Romans in terms of empire building and all of that. So it's very much linked to that, and I think also it's very much linked to colonialism in terms of um, a lot of a lot of the narrative that you you get, um, particularly like previously. I feel like yeah, there's there is starting to be like in the more mainstream a lot more of kind of actual assessment of the impact of um, colonialism. But you know for a long time there was sort of this idea of like well you know they uh the you know imperial powers brought so much to these kind of, you know brought the rail brought the railways you know invention and progress and all of that and that 
absolutely um you know doesn't take into account just how much it um impeded and um and stopped a lot of the innovation that was flourishing in the countries at the time and just how you know for example when uh when these india companies started trading in india sort of back in the 1600s uh india was responsible for i think 22 percent of uh, the world's gdp um i think in about two percent and by the time they left india those percentages were reversed so mm. you know when you think about just how the just you know what a mega power in you know india was at that time and how kind of flourishing it was how it was just this you know at the time when i'm writing about it's it was all by Mughals and they were, you know, very much interested in education and sciences and art and just, you know, sort of this huge intellectual flourishing, but um, we're not kind of taught that or kind of, you know, that sort of stuff isn't um, isn't discussed and it's just, uh, yeah, this kind of idea of uh, Western sort of enlightenment and progress is perpetuated uh, instead. So I think that definitely... Uh, Definitely, that is linked to uh, a lot of the uh, yeah the way of that sort of supposed legacy from like the Greeks to like I don't know, modern days in terms of like perpetuating this idea of white supremacy. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it all comes down to these these ideas that were that we were sort of fed, and and certainly even more so, you know, in the last few hundred years. But that, like, yeah, enlightenment is a, is a, the good word for it of, like, you know, all the things that the Greeks brought. And then so if the British mm. are the inheritors of that, then they're only bringing gr- good things. And, like, oh, they're just bestowing their mm. wisdom, their technology on these, like, quote unquote, primitive people, you mm. know, like civilizing them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, just that, yeah. That's that civilizing word. Right. Which is, I mean, mm. I think why it, hearing you talk about it it's like it's why Medea is such a perfect character because Mm. she she is the other she is the barbarian she is you know like yeah I mean gods that that part is always so fascinating about her generally like when I learned that I was like blown away because I think I'd yeah heard that story so so often without the that additional really important context that she's like Mm. not Greek and and I think too like even when we hear that so often, like if you don't understand how the Greeks saw not Greek, you still don't get it, right? Mm. Like you have to know that like barbarian context of like, no, like that's where the word comes from. You're not Greek or a barbarian. Like you're, you know, you don't matter. All these different things, especially, you know, in the, in the time period of Euripides and in Athens specifically. But mm, even just like the, yeah. the time period you're talking about makes me think of like, you know, all the, the grand tours that mm. all the rich boys were taking, Absolutely. right? Like visiting Greece. And yeah. it makes me think of, and I don't know the timeline for this. It's certainly later, but probably not that much. Um, but I think that, you know, of Lord El- Elgin, I don't know if it's a yeah. hard or soft G, but going in yes. and taking all the Parthenon yeah. marbles and yeah. just like. Absolutely. I think when I was when I was first thinking about uh, Jason, I, I think yeah, Lord Elgin definitely was actually a massive influence, and yeah, sort of it was. I think it was. I think it really was actually. Yeah, the path, uh, the path and freezers um, in the British Museum. But kind of, I think almost that was the light bulb moment. Thinking about that, mm. and thinking about Jason, I was just like, what? Like, what is he doing? Just going up there, and yeah, just thinking he can take this because because he wants it. And it's yeah, um, yeah and it, well. British Museum is oh yeah yeah I don't have time to get into all of that but it's um it's just appalling how um yeah how museums continue to to profit and kind of benefit from stolen artifacts and they they know that they're stolen they know you know know that the province is um yeah spurious and you know sort of dubious at best um Mm -hmm. and 
and yeah, kind of continues to, to continues to maintain the colonial uh, patronizing mindset in terms of uh, you know they're better like kept here or anything like oh, that is yeah it's just appalling. Well, yeah, I mean, and and not to like you know not to turn it away too much from from you know your setting and everything too, but I it it, it just makes me think even of like how you know how modern Greece was treated mm. in the past few hundred yeah. years right it's like britain britain became the inheritors like the quote-unquote west became the inheritors of ancient greece and modern greece got none of it modern greece became Absolutely. like yeah like it's like they were completely separated from from their heritage in favor of it being given to these people who were more explicitly like you know quote-unquote white like more western everything it's like mm. yeah greece even lost it like El- elgin came in yeah. and and took everything because Greece couldn't deal with it. And and even yeah. still, yeah, like you're saying, like they still maintain this idea that they're better off in the British Museum, which like, yes, not to get too deep into it, but just to make sure my listeners know, in case I haven't said it recently, like there is a constant leak in the room where the Parthenon marbles are held. There are, you can find so many pictures of buckets on the floor catching the water where the Parthenon marbles are held in the British Museum, whereas Athens built an enormous state of the art beautiful museum gorgeous. to hold them it's you say it was stunning gorgeous. it's amazing. It's amazing the layout like the layout is so incredible listener if the first floor is like everything that they found like, around the rock the second floor is everything on the rock that isn't the parthenon the third floor is the parthenon and they laid it out like literally so that it like mirrors the actual person on the rock which is like a stone's throw away like it is positioned in the same direction and it is like the height are like as if you were really walking around it looking and they're all copies because they're all in the british museum and anyway um yeah needless to say i feel strongly about that i'm going to athens for i think the seventh time in two weeks and and I've still never seen the person on marbles, and I think that that yeah. is like so telling. It's like I first went on a school trip when I um mm. yeah when I was at school, and it was god the abs the absolute embarrassment, the shame of like yeah going around with our tour guide who yeah very pointedly and rightly pointed out <laughs> that yeah so there are something missing here. <laughs> I love Wonder how much the Greeks are assholes about it now. Like they're 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 like we're going to tell you about the stuff you stole and you won't get back. Like they're so yeah. strong absolutely about it. I love right. it. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. No. And it's and it's true. Like yeah, kind of because you know they're not keeping it properly. And then that doesn't even. And then there's all the things that's not even on display in terms mm-hmm. of things that's like, that's just you know in in storage. And you know some museums are starting to um, to give stuff back and that's absolutely right but there's yeah so many still aren't and it's um it's really yeah it's just it's just hard to just like it's just impossible to justify it's um yeah and actually um in sort of just going briefly back to but some yeah some of the there's (laughs) something that I no just because it suddenly reminded me that um that something in my um yeah kind of towards towards the end is kind of like an artifact is kind of um identified in in the home and it's very much influenced by um a lot of a lot of the artifacts from um India that's in Powers Castle which is where kind of the descendants of like, the son of Robert Clive lived so kind of things that um were taken um during that time and I'm still here there yeah past castles and wells so so huh. yeah you can still find it here so yeah kind of huge amount of um 
huge amount of things that were stolen uh, are still kind of in sort of stately homes in in UK. Um, and to be fair to uh, the organisation National Trust that kind of do maintain this, they are getting better at actually kind of talking about the colonial history of that. And they have this whole project, Colonial Countryside, that kind of looks at how, um, yeah, kind of the you know these items that are kind of in these homes and also kind of the wealth that these homes were built with and how kind of it's just very much linked to colonialism and it's yeah so it's uh it's something that is just right throughout the UK and yeah I imagine a lot of the sort of anglophone world yeah well and I've never really thought about it that way like I mean I think about the artifacts a lot and providence and like you know the, all the issues there but as somebody who again is Canadian like we don't have those we don't have those like stately homes mm. we don't have oh. we don't have that kind of and and more so in the east there is a bit more of that like that level of colonialism that led to you know these enormous shows of colonial wealth but we don't have anything like the UK because we don't yeah. it, like we were built as a country of like you know colonialism but like in a kind of different way not as like a wealth there's a lot of wealth that's all colonial but you know it does the context isn't there but the idea mm. of, of these places that were just people's homes and then they stole stuff and kept it and the idea that that stuff is still there like that like that's something I would have never thought about yeah that's, that's so amazing bad. that you're able to kind of fit that in and like I mean yeah yeah I feel like there's so much that you you were probably able to like fit in in terms of this this colonial aspect and it yeah. it does fit so well with Greece because they were colonial power too and like mm. I mean I don't want to say that they're anything like the UK because I think the, the UK the British really really just took hold and like yeah, took it all really up to excel. a new level <laughs> 10 out of 10 really like just well top marks but uh but yeah no but you know obviously you know the the Athenians, you know, kind of particularly, yeah, kind of their sort of empire and kind of supremacy. I remember, um, yeah, when I did my classics degree, we looked at, we studied the the Parthenon, and I think I had an essay question that was uh, something along the lines of, yeah, it's as much a um, kind of monument to to its, uh, I, can't, I can't remember if the word colonialism was actually used mm. or, yeah, kind of imp- like empire, like it's uh, Athenian kind of imperial might as it is, like, um, I don't know, yeah, like sort of Athena, or, I can't remember the exact question, but yeah, it was kind of like leading you to kind of look at how how it was built and kind of, you know, the money at the Athenian League and everything and just how, um, yeah, that's very much, very much was prevalent then. Um, and also thinking about, you know, kind of talked about the, you know, sort of political context I was writing in. Think about Euripides. It was kind of time of Pericles, right? And his citizenship mm-hmm. laws, you know, and how the, you know, the the real impacts of having, you know, children with uh, a foreign woman was very much a live issue at that time. And so, you know, very much, I think, that would have been quite, you know, really recognisable in terms of, you know, the audience that, yeah, he was playing to and just kind of, it would have, you know, local uh, tragedy, it's kind of about that time and that place in in the, you know, myth, but then it's also really about themselves, right? And kind of what's Mm -hmm. happening to them so it's uh yeah how they 
like you said, how they're kind of treated sort of non-Greeks and just sort of the the impacts of those in terms of people's lives, I think would have been very much um, on their minds watching Medea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, I like to give Euripides all the credit in the whole <laughs> world. Give him every benefit of the doubt, for sure. But like, I mean, I, I'm curious, like, how. I mean, I certainly he was intending it, like, because you're mm. right, like the time period, um, you know, and, and particularly being in Athens, which was the most mm. strict in terms of women and in terms of marriage and, and like in the strictures of that, like Athens was the worst, you know, like by, by far. Um, and so while it takes place in Corinth, like Euripides is writing about Athens, he's just placing mm. it in Corinth. It's like, it's like how, you know, like I swear, like 60% of Greek tragedies are placed in Thebes so that they can like yeah. write about a foreign city while also commenting on Athens. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the Medea of it all is, is fascinating because it's like not even just like the, you know, having children with the foreigner and her being a foreigner, but it's like also that, that like she believed she and Jason were married, mm-hmm. but Jason is like, nope, because, yeah. it, you know, you're a foreigner. So we're not even officially married. Like I don't even have any, like he doesn't have anything that he he's not beholden to her in any way he can do whatever the fuck she he wants because she is this barbarian and and so now like that leads me to like i'm i'm kind of fascinated by how that that comes up in your book because you know you're writing in this colonial time period and obviously you've got i love the james by the way i meant to say that earlier like james (laughs) and mina is like the greatest way to make them both like like of their own culture while also being like "Hmm, look who they are though like (laughs) james feels like totally equivalent to jason in terms of just like useless douchebag um so just yeah really stood out to me um but like so yeah how 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 did you kind of and i you know stop me if if anything is going to be spoily obviously Mm. but like when it comes to that foreigner aspect i imagine it's interesting because i mean I just want to hear anything kind of about that foreigner aspect, I guess, because Mm. it's sort of a weirder because you've said it's so colonial Mm. where like the foreigners are in the foreign place. But like, obviously, the, you know, the 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 British still are the British of it all. So I'm just kind of Mm. that wasn't really a question, but if you could speak to that at all, I'm really interested. So, so yeah, I guess thinking about the kind of marriage, non-marriage aspect, because um, yeah, she's she's a foreigner, and so isn't you know entitled to the you know rights and protections, or you know just sort of all of that that um, that she would be as as a Greek woman. Um, Yeah, without wanting to to go into spoilers, that is definitely explored in um, in the book, and it's um, I guess again thinking about um, the you know. Like uh, what I was sort of doing in in my day job at the time, like it's definitely uh, something that uh, is very much prevalent, you know, today where uh, you'll get sort of um, as you know a part as a form of abuse kind of to keep um, women in a kind of position of vulnerability. They're kind of yeah, they're sort of regularizing kind of marriage or kind of their immigration status. That's kind of in you know sort of uh, partners won't do that big um or you know will kind of delay doing that in order to maintain kind of that control or just kind of ensure that they're not kind of in a position of power. They can you know ac- actually leave or you know access any sort of protection and support. So that's mm-hmm. definitely something that is. Um, is very prevalent actually and is yeah just something that happens um regularly and and yeah kind of in the 
in the story uh they they travel around and so i think and and travel to kind of different uh, parts and you know sort of meet myth you know certain characters that you know we know and love who are related to uh kind of the <laughs> jason and medea myth uh without kind of wanting to to go into any details and i think you can definitely um see co- uh differences in t- how james uh you know kind of was an act you know where he's able to really tap into that um you know the benefit of being a white european uh, man from you know a wealthy family and you know where he where sort of mina has more kind of uh, more of a support network more of you know kind of equal fishing and so i think you can see that throughout the, the book where he you know where he, that kind of places where sort of that foreigner aspect to her identity is emphasized he feels kind of more comfortable and sort of where there's the emphasize he feels less mm-hmm. yeah like where he holds the power that's exactly. so interesting yeah It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Okay, it leads me to a fun question, um, which is that, so obviously, you know, you're not setting this in Greek mythology. You can't deal with the gods or divinity or anything. So is there like a favorite part of Medea's story that you were like, I really can't make this <laughs> into the real world? <laughs> like, is there something that you really wish you could have made work in, in your book? Uh, ooh, um, I don't... I'm trying to decide if this is a spoiler or not. I don't think so. Well, just in terms of the very specifics of um, her, well, her grandfather being uh, the son and, um, you know, <laughs> having a dragon chariot, uh, sadly, kept not, yeah, a little short on dragon chariots back in uh, the 18th <laughs> century. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something that I just love uh, from the myth. It's such, you know, such an iconic um iconic scene you know the end of the play where she's up in crane and everything it's just like yeah exactly and and i love that um oh you know there's that uh there's a vase uh i think you know so greek vase but i think it might be during roman times yeah i think you know the one i mean where it's kind of depicting yeah. that scene and it's just it's so cool like the dragons like the way they're like drawn are just like amazing and coily and just like yeah awesome so that would have been that would have been amazing to to the pitch, but obviously kind of working within the realm where, you know, everyone's mortal can't quite do that. But try to have a couple <laughs> nods here and there. So hopefully you I know you if you're if you're looking for that, you can sort of see where, you know, where those little sort of fun references are. Love that. Yeah. That was definitely what I was expecting you to answer, um, because the Dragon Chariot is so great. And also I imagined you couldn't exactly fit it into your story, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes me just think we would of, travel by dragon chariot if we could, right? Just I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Like, <laughs> but yeah, that that pottery that you're talking about is is so cool. Um, and to the listeners, we'll make sure that it's in the little promo video on my Instagram for this for this episode. But yeah, she not only is she driving a badass dragon chariot in that pottery, but they also really made her look foreign in a way that I think mm. is super impactful and like yeah, she doesn't always yeah. look that foreign but yeah in that one like they gave her this whole like hat thing that's very not Greek like she very much looks like this badass barbarian woman driving a dragon chariot absolutely yeah no it's um yeah I think it's a really great depiction of her um you know because I guess obviously throughout centuries we've had lots you know you get lots of um like Euro yeah European kind of depictions of her but it's just yeah I love I love her at her most, like, most foreign, most godly kind of, yeah, self. Mm -hmm. 
It just reminds me, um, in in very European traditions of her, I just before I got on this call, I was on Twitter and um and another author I recently spoke to for the podcast, Luna McNamara, mm. she tweeted, uh, yeah, I got everybody on right now. It's so exciting. Um, but she she tweeted some like she had like a Spider Man reference to it, which was uh mm. funny, but basically um that that Waterhouse painting, I think it's mm. Waterhouse because he's usually my favorite. Of like where Jason is like leaning in and watching Medea so intently and he looks like his usual Jason self and that he's totally useless. And Medea is like pouring some vial into some magical yeah, something. So and she just looks so great. Yeah, she looks so yeah, serious awesome. and cool. Yeah. yeah, no, it's um, I do, yeah, I do love a lot of those um, those European yeah. European gods. Just I don't know, a lot of the pictures that really just. Yeah, kind of capture her, like, at her most magical. Like, yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. There is also um, this, for something that's very different, there's this um, Indian artist called Nalini Malani, who um, she she references uh, Madeira a lot, actually, in her work uh, to explore that those, you know, themes of the colonised and the colonised. And she's she did this, like, quite, yeah, quite, strange looking honestly like um sort of charcoal drawing of Medea. I think it's called Madeira's Mutant and it's kind of a uh yeah kind of drawing of of a sort of um of Medea kind of a body but like it's quite you can't necessarily it's not it doesn't have a lot of detail to it it's um yeah it doesn't look very kind of human to be honest let alone female it's quite kind of roughly drawn and it's got little kind of eraser marks kind of all sort of in it mm. and it feels I know it feels like it's very much trying to capture that kind of um dehumanized erase you know er- an erasure kind of um sense of like her being a foreign woman and it's just I really like it because it's so different to any other kind of depiction of idea that I've ever seen and it's just yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating I'm gonna try to remember to um send you an email so you can send me that if that's okay I so that I can do. share it with the episode yeah because that sounds really fascinating and I love the idea of of sharing an, a version of her that is sort of explicitly like exploring those those same themes um because yeah for all I love the Waterhouse ones like I mean, <laughs> it's definitely not negating the, the colonialism of it all. But, but yeah, it, I guess it's all just about like variety. And that's, I think, the the beauty of myths, right? Kind of they're mm-hmm. these like ancient stories with like these compelling characters that just kind of, they're designed to be just kind of retold and reinterpreted and reimagined. But, you know, and it's just, it's just, you know, having lots of different perspectives allows us to have lots of different interpretations. I mean, obviously I've, written this book but I, I also you know I don't want to I think it's also worth noting that there are kind of have been other um versions of of the myth told by other um, people of color who you know throughout years who have done like an amazing job in the you know different contexts like for example obviously uh Toni Morrison's Beloved I think it's probably the most well-known in terms of I always forget like, that's Medea yeah she studied classics at Howard so yeah she's like oh. she was very like steeped in like the myth um yeah yeah no and it's um yeah like I mean like yeah there's words can't describe how extraordinary kind of that book is um mm-hmm. and just kind of looking at the the aftermath of kind of that sort of uh yeah kind of that sort of action and was um inspired by a real life woman who was known who's you know known as modern Medea. And then also uh, I think there's a book by Percival Everett who I haven't read, but that's called For Her Dark Skin. 
that is mm. that sounds really intriguing as well and similarly it's kind of yeah black americans kind of take on on the deer um and yeah i know that there's like a like a mexican-american um like almost kind of dystopian like uh future yeah dystopian play that kind of explores it as well so like there's there are kind of um other sort of post-colonial and kind of um intersectional kind of uh reading you know the versions of of her and the myth by people of color it's just i think yeah need to bring them to the fore a little bit more because yeah i think it's definitely worth you know perspective worth sort of emphasizing particularly when it comes to this myth yeah absolutely i'm really glad you brought all of those up um i'm gonna try to do some googling so i can link to them as well um because yeah i agree i mean at- and I think it's it's wonderful that Medea is so ripe for that and and exactly mm-hmm. what you said earlier, which is that like I mean these myths themselves they they exist to be retold that that's like you know oral storytelling is that like we don't even know what versions of them used to exist, mm-hmm. let alone the ones that can come now, you know like that that is the whole point, and I think there there's a there's a subset of people who who feel so strongly. That, that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Greek myths are like this untouchable perfection. And it's funny that I say this now because yesterday, yesterday Twitter was like absolutely awash with, with, um, with uh, a lot of them were explicitly white supremacists, but I'm just going to assume that they all were, um, who, who were like, so they made Odysseus trend because of like, I saw that today and I was very confused. So yeah, please, please leave with that. Yeah, I forget how it started. I know a a, a large uh, part of it was um was a tweet by Joel Christensen. Um, but I I think it started with 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 a uh and and Joel's been on my show to talk about Homer. Um, and now we're gonna do an Odysseus episode after what happened. Yes. But it started with I think uh, some conservative um tweeting that like you know uh, that like I think it was something along the lines of which these these come up a lot the idea that like men today aren't like Odysseus and or like whoever right it's always a stand-in for for some Greek hero <laughs> like like men are so bad today because they're not Odysseus and then I think it was it was Joel who got into shit by being then like get all of their friends killed. <laughs> yeah exactly so Joel literally <laughs> tweeted it was like a list of everything that that Odysseus does which is like yeah all of his friends die like all of his ships are destroyed he threw a baby off a tower like he he slaughtered enslaved women for no other reason than than mm. they were enslaved and did what they were forced to do and it's like and then that just like blew up and mm. and a, like a bunch of people in my sort of Twitter circle were were getting hounded for all of this stuff. But like it, it just it, it's this like ongoing and wild thing. And like, it, I mean, I say wild, but like I'm not surprised by it anymore. I just wish it would stop all the same. Mm. But but this like this these conservative, typically men, white supremacist, basically always one guy definitely used the word Aryan at some point. So I'm like, well, you made it obvious. Yeah. Um, but like these people who just think that the, the, the Greek myths, the Greek stories are untouchable. Like they, like they just, you know, need to remain exactly what they are because they're perfect. And they show this like world that we should strive for. It's like, I don't know what you're reading. Like, I know the issue is that like, I will never understand your brain because you're like a broken human, these people who say these things, Mm. but like, yeah, anyway, that, that's all to bring it back to this idea that like, yeah, the myths need to be retold. This definition of ta- which, um, tell me you know nothing about Greek myths without telling me you know nothing about the Greek myths. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like their their entire purpose was to be retold. Like Euripides was retelling Medea in, in mm. his play. 
he is the one who made her kill mm. her children. That mm. did not exist before him, and it became this staple of the myth. But but for all we know, he invented that. Like, mm. it, it, you know, it's impossible to say for sure, but like based on our sourcing, he invented it. And and yet it became part of the myth. But if we look at Euripides, like technically speaking, he should not be the arbiter of a myth. He he is the arbiter of his play. He wrote a play. It's like saying, you know, that a movie adaptation of something then becomes the canon and you're like well no it's an adaptation but but because the greek tragedies are often what we have as sources and and because they are so ancient we forget that we forget that a tragedy is an adaptation it it has artistic license and and anyway like Hmm. all to say like retellings are great and good and important (laughs) and particularly (laughs) ones like like decolonized ones mm-hmm. and, and and these ones that explore these themes that are sort of you know antithetical to 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 how the the greek stories are often misused by you know the worst of humanity yeah no but it's no joke. i i i do love the story um you know the sort of supposed um myth again that um you know the corinthians page rip these off to uh, oh yeah, to yeah. the ending <laughs> So but they were because you know kind of versions of it are oh, that the the Corinthians call the children and they're like oh, I get some bad PR <laughs> just like change it a little bit. I always uh, forget about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's the thing, right? Like we, we, we have don't no idea know. kind of what yeah the origins of this are and yeah you know myths don't have myths don't have a copyright like they're not you yeah. know kind of it's reproduced in invent Medea <laughs> she existed yeah. before him and exists you know will exist long after him and has so far so yeah it's that's that's the whole purpose of myth and it's the same with Homer and you know Ovid and everyone <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and that's what makes them so fun mm. like when when we suggest that we can't like change and retell and adapt these stories like i mean not only does it have all these problematic connotations but it's also like why like it's fun it's the myths have always been fun and they should be fun and like yeah i mean making them what we want them to be making them our own is like literally the point and and what makes them so interesting and the same with the idea of sourcing and, and Medea not being you know original to Euripides and and her being mysterious and the the, the fact that we don't know you know, yeah, why mm. why he had her kill her children. Like, is it because he wanted it? Is it because it fit the story? Is it because the Corinthians paid him? I like the idea that it was intentional on his part because I really do think that he makes her really empathetic. So, like, I'm very on the side of it was Euripides, you know, making a conscious choice in his writing. But I do love the rumors, right? Like, yeah. I forgot about that. Exactly, rumor, so yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I think um, I, I think you can't write something that... Um, yeah that compelling and emotive and um yeah really really affecting like it gets me every time I saw um yeah the uh, Sophia Canedo um performance of Medea in London recently and she was oh. just astonishing in it and it's just you know obviously I know the story I know how it's gonna end but like it's still just um yeah deeply deeply affecting and I don't think uh you can do that without yeah I don't think you could have written that without um really yeah doing something quite intentional and purposeful with that but but yeah myths, myths are meant to be um retold and just they're, they're fun that's the whole point of 
of myths and literature and I know that's why I think I like I love all of all of the retellings that are coming out I think it's such uh, such an exciting time for you know Greek myths and sort of exploring that and I hope then this boom will lead to um, you know a flourishing of uh, stories uh, from uh, like uh, retellings of myths from other cultures as well because mm-hmm. so like so many exciting like amazing extraordinary myths from around the world that deserves you know a wider audience but um but I also really love you know retellings that do play you know play with the myths a little just because yeah I guess have being a fan of the original myths I just always like kind of seeing what other people were doing with them like one of my all-time favorites is um Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi which mm. sort of takes the antiquity uh Tigany myth and then kind of sets it in sort of modern day Britain and kind of explores um sort of Islamophobia and war and terror and all that sort of thing and it was just yeah one of I think still was one of the most powerful um things to read and you know and before that there was you know again sort of Antigone on uh, Jean-Louis I think that's how you pronounce the name um French playwright who uh sort of did a version sort of during Nazi um, occupied France and you know mm. was writing basically kind of wrote in that um you know element of sort of resistance against you know fascistic regimes so it's there's yeah lots of exciting things and I, ha- I haven't read um Maya Dean's um novel yet Raph was in mm. but I really I really want to I think the idea of a trans Achilles is so cool and just so like perfect and I yeah it's just I'm just I, I I'm so in love at this time with like people just bringing you know bringing up no new and exciting um versions and takes on on these myths so yeah, I hope it, hope it continues. I agree. Yeah. I mean, selfishly, I hope it continues because it like absolutely supports my career. Um, but like, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm fine with it. Um, but I also, I've had, I've had Wrath Gotta Sing uh, on my shelf. I'm just looking at it now. I'm like, oh, mm. but that's yeah. To the listeners, Maya Dean's Wrath Gotta Sing, which I've never mentioned on the show and I absolutely should have. Yeah. I mean, what, what I'm so excited about completely selfishly, like I, I'm excited by all, all of the retellings that are coming out now. Um, because there are so many and it, it's great. And and I, I agree though, like I, I do hope that we can transition into a, a place where they're not all Greek. Um, Cause I think, yeah, so many other cultures deserve, uh, deserve, you know, their, their stories to be retold as well. Um, obviously I'm partial to the Greek cause that's my entire purpose, but, but personally, and again, selfishly, I, I love that like retellings like yours. And, and I hope there are more like that, that, that take the myth, and like home fire too, like take the myth and, and re- like adapt it, like place it somewhere else, use the story to tell a different story. Um, not least because I think that like, especially, you know, with home fire and, and with yours, where, where you're getting to address these colonial aspects and the, this like important topics that are relevant today, utilizing a Greek myth. But personally, because I spend like 90% of my time reading Greek myth. I like ones that aren't straight retellings because every time I read a straight retelling now, like I feel like I've broken myself because I read it and I'm like, I know what's going to happen. You're not going to surprise me. I want to be surprised. But like, I know everything that happens in the myths and it just like lives in my brain all the time. So when I get ones like yours where it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. How exciting. Like, yeah. I know no, the basic, I just, what you're working with, but yeah. 
I totally get that. Yeah, I think I think there is an element for me as well, kind of uh, as a writer, kind of, um, I know, I guess also like when you're write, writing a book is hard, like it takes ages and there's yeah. so, like such a long editing process. <laughs> but um, but yeah, like it's you have to you have to really like the book you're writing. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. and I think for me to continue to be entertained and kind of interested in what I'm writing, I think I I need to have a, um, yeah, something that, that is new and different and kind of, um, yeah, kind of puts a new spin on it just to keep myself entertained. And then hopefully kind of readers will feel the same. Um, I think also there's an element of just like taking pictures of myself because if I were to try and uh, compare myself to Euripides, I would have like, <laughs> just massively inadequate because I think he's a genius. So it's just like you know uh, it gives me then space for to to make something that is just wholly my own and just you know a, a different you know a whole another creation that just really um tells a story that I want to tell rather than what um I think yeah has been told before and you know what potentially people expect yeah yeah I mean Euripides is a genius that's a simple fact I just I also I think so highly of him like it's really I feel like I put weight him on this like absurd pedestal at this point but I also like to think that like based on what he writes as a person um I also think that he would like really appreciate like stories like yours and, and other like these retellings that that like emphasize different things and like I don't know that's just mm. <laughs> apparently I want to talk about Euripides um but yeah I, yeah, he definitely is someone who's who's interested in like telling stories in a different way. Like he definitely, yeah. like he, yeah, he wouldn't have written Medea that way. And like I don't know, even just like thinking about, but yeah, how he handles kind of the Orestes myth, and just you know thinking about what sort of went before in terms of Aeschylus, and like you know clearly very much trying to do something different there. Like yeah. he's, uh, like he seems very interested in like writing in response to what went before you know and you know I, I guess we don't really think about like great things as being reception but it almost feels yeah kind of reception in that way in terms of how like it's yeah how he's writing writing his version in the myth like in response to what's gone before and it's um like yeah I, I think he I think he's is very interested in that and I think that's why I really like him as well yeah yeah he's interested in that and and he's so specifically interested in in women that that's why mm. I love him like he yeah. really just was like they don't have to be perfect and and good or just evil like I think Medea is the perfect example of that like she is good and bad in equal measures and that's what he's interested in and and I think that's what makes her so compelling and fascinating and why I love mm. her and Euripides forever <laughs> <laughs> So, and he's also sorry we're getting on a massive like group of these chapters but just something also <laughs> thinking about um also yeah how he like the different ways he uh uh sort of um explores characters even you know across different plays like helen for example like the helen of you know trojan women is so different to the helen of helen. Yes. and like it's just it's fascinating and like it's so it's so cool he's able to really like you know like chalk and cheese in terms of like yeah the depiction and how kind of they're meant to evoke sympathy like it's just it's really it's really fascinating and it's uh yeah no it I just I, I love how his trees treatment of women as well and how he's able yeah. to just kind of bring out complexity and empathy where kind of there may not have been in you know previous versions of the myth yep yep exactly oh my gosh okay I'm gonna yeah 
I could go on about your piece forever, but I will not. I want to make sure that we close this um, with more about your book. <laughs> um, but also your piece is amazing. I don't know. Is, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you were like, that was kind of your goal in writing this? And I, I don't want to put you on the spot. It's hard to come up with an answer that's so broad or to a question that's so broad. But yeah, I mean, like, what what did you kind of want to get out of this, I guess? Like, other than, you know, a retelling of, of Medea and... I don't know. Is that a decent question? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I guess in terms of of what I wanted to to get out of this, I guess yeah, kind of you know, starting off very small. I I wanted to write a book that I you know was was interesting to me, and for me that was you know trying to do something new and different and exciting with the myth. I wanted to, I wanted to rightly kind of yeah center the marginalized aspects of her identity which I felt that you know had been slightly um under discussed I guess for for centuries and kind of needed to to be kind of um, to the forefront um and in doing so I guess I'm I hoped that it could it could also yeah shine a light on a part of history that I'm not super you know haven't been super familiar with you know it's not something that is part of uh, the British education system but you know kind of uh, you know through what is hopefully you know an interesting compelling story because the myth is you know just you know the bones of it through the myth is you know so so great in itself um allows people to actually kind of learn things that they haven't known before and hopefully maybe reflect on you know how those issues kind of permeate today whether it's kind of the uh yes yeah, so, uh, it's treatment of migrant people whether it's kind of white saviorism white feminism and how mm-hmm. you know kind of all of those things kind of continue to to permeate today and how uh you can sort of see these themes of injustice and othering kind of i know almost echo throughout history from like the myth to the century athens to the rise of colonialism to today so I guess that was that was my hope and intention with the book. Well, uh, that is a beautiful way of saying it and end of wrapping this up. But I think, yeah, I think that's such it's so important. And I'm and I'm glad that that Medea was kind of there for you as like as good bones for that. And I think probably it's, you know, being able to utilize her um, her basic story, which which appeals to to Western people uh and 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 white people and then and then sort of adapt it uh into this way where where it completely fits with your story but gets to tell um gets to tell a, a different and 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 more relevant to us today story i think is is a really impactful way of of yeah of like you know bringing awareness to to both you know the colonialist aspects and and these issues that you're talking about with with migrant women today um yeah i mean i think medea this is me not knowing how to take anything seriously i think medea would be really um glad that her story is used for this that's so too i i think she's definitely uh a woman who uh you know yeah again sort of slightly not taking it too seriously uh i think she's a woman who kind of is you know aware of her infamy and, and enjoys it you know yep <laughs> so I I think she she loves yeah she loves knowing that her her story is being retold. 
Yeah, yeah. She would be watching from her dragon chariot just with a big smile mm-hmm. on her face. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> After she buried her children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's not going to keep them in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, this is how I like to talk about really important things. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. This is so much fun. And also, I really do think that that the story is super important and the setting is super important. And I'm very glad um, that it exists for people to read. And I hope everybody does. Cool. Thank you very much. Uh, this has yeah, been so fun and so so great to, to be on your show. So, so thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. Um, well, I will, um, you know, I, I can like link to things in the episode's description, but also do you, and, and I think certainly the book is just going to be um, available for purchase uh, wherever you get books. But is there anything else you want to share? Um, any place you want my listeners to follow you? Kind of anything else you want to mention here? Sure. So, so yeah, if... Uh, if you like the sound of the book, uh, Savage Beast, and it's um, it hopefully by the time this airs will be out um, where you can get uh, books. It's um, available only currently in UK and Commonwealth, sadly. Uh, North American rights aren't uh, haven't been sold yet, but I believe Blackwells do free international shipping. So if you are interested, uh, you can uh, possibly order from there if you're um, in uh, America or Canada. Um, and also feel free to, to say online if, you, if you'd like the North American version, because I would like to see that as well. <laughs> and, um, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, Rani underscore writes. So I and I underscore writes like writer and um, on Instagram at Rani underscore Selvaraja. Wonderful. Thank you so much for doing that. And I'll link to, to everything there in the description. And just it's been lovely chatting with you. It's been lovely chatting with you as well. Uh, as always, thank you all so much for listening. I truly love conversation episodes so much. It's so nice to have a mixture too, like of academics and scholars with their niche topics and specialties, and then amazing authors like Ronnie and the others that I've spoken to recently, particularly when it comes to books like this. Like I am so fucking keen to have authors on to not only share their work and to help promote it to potential readers, but to also talk about such important topics that often get left out of this discourse around Greek mythology. Obviously today's conversation was like all of those things, along with being generally fun and entertaining. We just had so much fun. I fucking love my job. Thank you all for helping me do it and for caring about, you know, like Medea and colonialism and like ongoing structural issues in colonial countries and beyond. It's important, obviously. So Savage Beast is Rani Salvaraja's new novel, this unique and fascinating retelling of Medea's incredible story of living as a foreign woman in a colonial world. And while it's only widely available in Commonwealth countries, the irony of which is not lost on me, uh, Blackwell's in the UK does ship internationally. So I've linked to that really specifically in this episode's description, along with places to find Rani on social media and with any luck to hear about future editions of the book beyond the Commonwealth. But for now, you can get it and you should. 
Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and I love this shit. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.